Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to be learning all about the 2003 movie, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. To help us separate fact from fiction, we'll chat with the lead technical advisor and historical consultant on the movie, Gordon Lacko. Gordon's company, which you can find through the link in the show notes for this episode, provides historical consulting services for filmmakers so they can tell better stories. Before we connect with Gordon, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, hiding in the fog would not have happened like we see in the movie. Number two, the movie's original title was only The Far Side of the World, until the title Master and Commander was added in the last weeks of post-production. Number three, using the ruse of a lit decoy at night would not ever work like we see in the movie. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to chat with Gordon Lacko about the historical accuracy of Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. The text at the beginning of the movie gives a date of April 1805. It says Napoleon is the master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. Now, I must admit, when I think of Napoleon, I think of his campaigns with the army and not really the navy. So can you share a little more historical context around the role of the French navy and how it served in Napoleon's campaigns? Yeah, sure, Dan. There's there's a lot there in that statement, uh, both in it and between the lines, as usual in a movie. We say uh, oceans are now battlefields. They always were. If someone were alive then in 1805, he would have been the son of somebody who was the son of somebody who knew a world at war. The Seven Years' War had been fought in, in their grandfather's time, and that by every definition was a world war. In fact, that was the global conflict that led to the American Revolution, which led to the French Revolution. In the middle of the 1700s, the American colonists clamored for the crown to fight a war to drive France or to bring the war to the continent to drive France out of North America. The crown did. And then they said, okay, boys and girls, now you're going to pay for that war. So they put the, the uh, tea taxes and so forth on the colonists and they didn't like to pay their taxes. So um, in that statement is, is a lot. The war was already everywhere in the uh, planet that there was water to float ships because trade was worldwide then. And with regards to Napoleon, the French had a very large empire then. They had very fine seamen, but they were very much a continental power. Their lines of, inter of communications were internal, whereas the British tended to be external, just like in World War I and World War II and our, our uh, parents and grandparents' living, living memory. The uh, French had another problem. They did have a fine service. They built wonderful ships that the British were always delighted to have when they could take them. But the French Revolution basically and figuratively and actually decapitated the French Navy. Uh, because of the nature of the service, many of the, uh, of the talented leaders and, uh, and officers were in aristocratic families, you know, as they were in, in England. And uh, those people were lopped off 
literally. And the French leadership was very young and inexperienced. Men rose to command much, much sooner than they would have in normal times. And sometimes because of political reasons, that whole mix didn't, didn't go together too well. But that's not to say they weren't a very formidable foe. Okay. Now, I know the movie is based on a novel by Patrick O'Brien of, of the same name. And it's actually, I think, the first of like 20 novels that were focusing on Russell Crowe's character, Captain Jack Aubrey, as well as Paul Bettany's character in the movie, uh, Dr. Stephen Maturin. And were they actually based on real people? Yes. And uh, that reminds me of something that made me scratch my head and squint when the movie was first made. We shot it as Far Side of the World. The bulk of the plot line comes from that novel in the series. But in the last weeks of post-production before the movie was released, they added Master and Commander to the title, Master and Commander, comma, The Far Side of the World. The people in Hollywood uh, hoped that there was going to be a series, and it would be called the Master and Commander series after the first novel. But of course, as people have read the book know, that movie has got nothing to do with the first novel, but a lot to do with the, uh, the one where they sail into the Pacific. So yes, uh, that story was uh, based on, on reality. During the years of the War of 1812, the uh, United States sent a frigate into the Pacific Ocean, USS Essex, to attack the English whaling fleet. And there were many parallels to our times, actually, in that, in what was happening right when we were shooting the movie. Imagine a, an immensely wealthy religious fanatic who had a pathological hatred for the world, uh, one of the world powers then. This was an American fellow named Peabody in Massachusetts who hated England. And he helped outfit a warship that would attack that world power in a manner that his national service could not because the, the world power was just too large. They knew that whale futures were being traded on the London stock market. And it occurred to people in the U.S. that if they could decimate a season's whale oil, it would cause a stock market crash in England. And that might knock England out of the war and allow Napoleon to invade and basically end the world war that was going on then. So the British Secret Service uh, found out about this. The American frigate had already been dispatched to the Pacific, and the only ship that could go was a small warship named HMS Phoebe. And Phoebe chased Essex around Cape Horn up into the Pacific Ocean, where they, they had a meeting I won't go into the details of now. But that is the genesis of the story that's in O'Brien's novel. So it is based on a real story. And... Uh, Interestingly, we set the film 10 years earlier, not in the War of 1812, because we felt after several meetings we didn't have the time in the film to explain what the War of 1812 was about. So we set it earlier and made the enemies French instead of English, instead of uh, American. That didn't require any explanation. It was something that people could understand. I fantasized and actually scribbled scenes where Stephen, as an intelligence agent, is explaining to Jack what the War of 1812 was all about, because, of course, we would have been deeply involved in all that, but uh, we, did, we didn't get to do it. The characters are based on real people, too. Uh, Captain Jack Aubrey is based very heavily on Thomas Cochran, who was a, uh, a frigate captain uh, during those days. The feats of daring that he accomplished defy fiction. He did things that, uh, if you put in a movie, nobody would believe. Uh, Stephen's character, I think, is a mix of uh, Sir Joseph Banks, who was a very wealthy scientific benefactor who traveled with Cook, Charles Darwin, who was, of course, from a later time, and obviously Patrick O'Brien himself, uh, the secretiveness and, uh, and so forth that comes from there. I think O'Brien was writing about himself a lot when he was 
coloring in Stephen's character. One of the terms that we hear in the movie is weather gauge. The way that the movie explains it, Aubrey kind of explains it to to Stephen's character, and um, he says that basically weather gauge means that they have the wind in their favor, and that's how they explain in the movie that the Akron is able to sneak up on the surprise the first couple times that they see each other in the movie. The impression I got was the only option that the surprise had when the Akron showed up with the weather gauge was all you got, all you can do is run away, <laughs> pretty much. Can you give a little more information on what the weather gauge term was? And once a ship had that in their favor, was there no other option but to run away? Yeah, in reality, weather gauge is a very complicated concept. Sometimes it could mean that you're upwind of the enemy and you can control the wind that he's feeling by positioning yourself. It can also mean being downwind of an enemy. And I can remember vividly being at meetings trying to describe this to the production in terms of modern yacht racing, which is my passion uh, outside of work. Uh, if you have a foe that doesn't want to fight, the place to be is downwind of him. So in that, in that circumstance, the weather gauge is downwind because you should imagine the ocean as an angled ski slope. The ships can travel back and forth across it down easily. Very, very difficult to go up. So if you're pursuing a foe that doesn't want to fight, the way to pin him is to get underneath him downwind and push him up against the wind until he can't go any higher. And if you have a fast ship that can sail higher, closer to the wind, closer to the wind direction than your foe, you can force him to fight and force and control a combat situation that way. That's how yacht racing works. If the foe wants to fight and you don't, well, then the roles are reversed and the weather gauge is then when when you've got the wind behind you. So it all depends on the situation. And overlaying all that, which is horribly complicated, maybe and not necessary for the film, is the circumstances of a commerce raider, which is what the friendship is in our film. He is thousands of miles from home. If he is damaged at all, he can't carry out his job of attacking the whaling fleet. He's finished. So he, in some situations, needs to avoid combat because the warship doesn't really care so much about casualties and damage as long as he damages the enemy. It's a different way of thinking. If, however, the vessel being pursued and the commerce raider, in this case the Ashram, feels uh, that this is a dogged foe that's going to chase and chase and chase, it's to their advantage to try to, and with a decisive blow, bump them off and, and, and finish them off. So in our story, she's really too big for a surprise to fight. So the French captain would know this. And he would think, if I can just knock away a few of their spars and, and kill enough of them in one quick engagement, they can't chase me anymore. And Jack would know that too. So he knows he can only fight if he has an advantage. So that's why sometimes surprise has to run, and sometimes the French have to run. The French will only fight, even though they're more powerful, if they can be sure of an, a knockout blow, because they're so far from from help. Okay. I guess I didn't factor in the the idea that their tactics would have to be completely different because of their location, how far they are from home, having to be different there. I, I guess I didn't really factor that because we don't really see a lot from the French side, you know, aboard the, the French ship. And we don't really see a, a lot of their strategy as much. Yeah, that's right. So it's um, it, it's a, a very it's like a game of chess. Sometimes one side will have an advantage and sometimes the other will. And with these two ships, uh, well, right up to World War Two. A commerce, commerce raider would only fight a warship if it could be sure of a fast knockout blow. And it actually happened once when a German raider named Cormoran met an Australian cruiser off the coast of Australia, HMAS Sydney. And the French 
tried to pretend they were a friendly ship, protesting they were being pursued by somebody, and tried to bluff the Australian warship into getting too close, and it worked. They sank the warship. Of course, they were sunk themselves. But normally, the commerce raider runs, uh, unless you can be sure of a knockout blow. And in the opening scenes of the film, that must be what that French captain was thinking. And that's actually the thoughts and the tactics we put we put into the film. He he knows that frigate's not going to stop chasing him. If he can if he can hit it hard once and get away, that's what he wants to do. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The, the first time we do see the Asheron firing on surprise, Aubrey makes the decision to hide in the a fog bank. They manage to make it there, even though it seems like they're badly damaged from the shots. But it seems to work. Like once they go into the fog, all the men are quiet and the French ship can't see them anymore. Would that tactic actually work just hiding in the fog like that? Dan, absolutely not. <laughs> it's something the audience could understand. So we found that useful. When we're making historic films of any type of in any era. I often throw on the table that I do try to keep in mind when giving my own advice that it's possible to be so right that you're wrong. And what I mean is uh, you can be so historically authentic. That's what I was just talking about, about uh, commerce raiders. So convoluted, correct, that the audience loses track of what you're talking about. And then if you lost them, that's bad. So what the production did here was they introduced fog in the story. Fog in the equator, that's pretty unlikely. Imagine if our uh, 500-ton frigate, which is about what the size of, of Surprise is, is being towed by three small boats with six or eight oars in each boat, and she's being pursued by somebody that's going fast enough they have a bow wave. Well, why wouldn't the French just follow them into the fog and shoot the hell out of them? And I said that to my wife uh, two nights ago when we rewatched the film, and she's a sailor too, and she said, well, sailing fast in the fog is dangerous. I said, yes, it is, because you might hit something. 
But in this case, the French want to hit that ship. If they if they crashed alongside and grappled with her, they don't number them three to one, and that would be good. But it, it was something we did in the film to help the uh, audience understand that Jack has come up with something at the spur of the moment. You know, the funny thing, Dan, when the film came out in 2003, there was a blizzard of armchair historians making complaints about various things. And one of the things I thought we'd be crucified for was that fog and the fact that it seemed like a barrier the French wouldn't cross. Nobody noticed that. What they did complain about was how the young man in the boat, uh, which was actually Midshipman Calamy, how he gave his orders to stop rowing. Well, I know as a naval officer, long time in the historic service, the correct order to stop rowing is the command, oars! When you yell oars, the oars stop and they are held up out of the water. And that stops the rowing. We discussed that in the production, and Peter Weir, our brilliant director, he said, Gordon, I don't want him to be an efficient naval officer at this moment. I want him to be a frightened teenager who's just realized he's going to live. So we had him give the order wrong. And that's why we did that. The emails and the phone calls I got were unbelievable over that. But nobody noticed that the fog was unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. They focus on the complete wrong part there. <laughs> It, it is a movie. Uh, on these productions, I see my job is to help the director tell his story. And I showed, I, I explained everything to them I just told you, and they understood. But my job was to show where center is down the tracks. So when they go off course, port and starboard from the known facts, they know when and by how much. And uh, those decisions are always made carefully. So the fog, the fog issue was introduced to allow surprise to escape and to let Jack show a bit of brilliance. When I watched that, again, watching that again before our discussion here, it seemed they entered a little bit of fog, and that wasn't quite enough. But then once they hit the real thick fog, okay, now that's going to be enough to have them magically disappear, almost like off the radar, if they had radar, right? <laughs> like they're disappearing. <laughs> Hiding in fog can work if the uh, vessel being pursued has some speed on her. What I would do if I was commanding a vessel retreating into a fog bank to hide, which happened in history, is uh, travel on a course and then say, okay, they saw me steering this course when they last saw me, go another mile, and then change, and then tack and change course so that when they come in, they don't know if I turned left, right, or went straight. And in that circumstance, you could hide effectively, but you need to be moving fast enough yourself that you can cover some ground before they come into the, into the fog too. Which you probably wouldn't be if you're being towed by three boats. No. <laughs> like the surprise. <laughs> But there is there is another scene in the movie where something like that sort of happens, except it's when Aubrey uses the technique to build this decoy with lights. And they, they set that there, and then the actual surprise sh uh, changes course and, and leaves, and then the Ashron keeps firing on that decoy. Is that something that would really happen? Yes, that is a ruse that uh, Cochrane used against the French himself in the Mediterranean. And incidentally, while doing a TV documentary called History versus Hollywood a few years ago for Discovery, we replicated Cochrane's ruse, and it works incredibly well. It wasn't as elaborate as we showed in the film. What we did was build a Danboy with a barrel, a spar, and a lantern on it. And I described then to the camera how in Cochrane's day, when he really did this, he didn't have all his lights blazing on the stern of the ship. What he did was showed one light occasionally then hit it and then showed it and then hit it, thinking to himself, the French will say, ha ha, those stupid English, someone's showing a light. 
and train them to follow that light. And then next time the light comes on, it's on the buoy and the ship sails away and the French chase the, the decoy. And we found as we were shooting the decoy correctly for the documentary, it is really, really difficult to tell how far away it is when it's one point of light with no reference around it. Impossible to tell if it's 50 meters away or a mile away. Isn't that crazy? And Ocran knew that, and it worked. So that really happened. In World War I, there was an English submarine named E-11, and they were being harassed by uh, Turkish gunboats in the Sea of Marmara during the Gallipoli campaign. And, of course, they had to surface every night to recharge their batteries and change their air. They needed to, sh- to shake off the pursuers. So they made a fake periscope, and they left it on the surface when they after they dove, and then stood off for a while watching the, the Turks gleefully destroy this periscope. And uh, they, they thought they'd got the submarine, so the hunt came off. In more recent times, uh, this is during my, my days in the Navy, NATO has a, uh, a war game every few years in the Atlantic, and one uh, in the Pacific, there's another one for the Allies there. And <clears throat> sometimes it ends up every, all the Allies against the Americans because they have the largest fleet. And what a British frigate did, uh, this was, I guess, about 10 years ago, when the war game started, she put on all her lights. She slowed to 12 knots, which is the speed a cruise ship travels at, put a sailor on the radio who could speak with a really good East Indian accent. And then when they were challenged by the uh, U.S. Navy saying, please alter your course, this is a military operation happening here, blah, blah, blah. Oh my God, what's happening? There's ships all over. None of them have lights on. And they pretend to panic while weaving through the defenses of the aircraft carrier. And when they got beside her within missile lock range, they put their lights out and said, gotcha. And that is what those war games are for, of course. But even in these modern days, ruses work. And when I was a naval officer myself, standing on the bridge of warships off the east coast of Canada, it was explained to me that Despite the fantastic sensing instruments warships have today, like radar and so forth, if you send a pulse out with your radar, everybody knows where you are. So it's come back to an officer with his eyeballs behind a pair of binoculars again. And at dawn, you go to action stations because you don't know what you're going to see. It's uh, it's back to Jack Aubrey and Cochrane. Isn't that interesting? That's really interesting. Again, I wouldn't have even thought of that until you mentioned it. Like, yeah, okay, you you send that ping out, you're going to be able to know where they are, but they're also going to know where you are. And so it kind of defeats the purpose. <laughs> That's right. So the uh, the creativity that we showed in the film still exists in naval officers today, and they're trained for it. Now, on the other side, would, in the case of you know a ship like the Ashron, would they know about that sort of decoy and, and be on the lookout for it? Yep, they would be very wary of being tricked. So uh, using the same trick twice often wouldn't work as it was with the U.S. Navy versus the Royal Navy <laughs> in the Atlantic, they, they would be very wary and very aware of that. In our film, uh, spoiler alert, Jack Harbour uses a disguise to lure the enemy close enough. And he knows the enemy is hunting whaling ships, partially because of intelligence reports he received with his orders when he was dispatched, just like HMS Phoebe, and partly because he's he's picked up whalers. He know, so he knows the uh, the French are pillaging that fleet. So he knows they're hungry for whaling ships, so he disguises himself as one. And in real life, that disguise would have worked up to probably half a mile away, not right up close. But it's the kind of ruse that captains did in those days. 
They could uh, very dramatically change the appearance of a, of a ship by altering its sail plan, making it look dirty when it shouldn't, by how it's sailing and, and what's going on on board. So that, that part was all, all real, although we stretched the uh, uh, credulity of it a little bit by letting the French come right alongside. Yeah, because they even like paint the back of the ship. I mean, they go all out and cha- you know changing the name and everything. And Cochrane did that. Yeah, he he took strips of old sailcloth and painted it so that uh, to hide his gun ports. And he did things like that to uh, to fool the enemy. And of course, they would be looking very carefully, uh, trying to decide whether or not this thing was safe enough to approach. I mean, that just adds another level of sensitivity that you have to have. Like you're always on edge because you you, can't, you can never let your guard down. And so you're always, who is this ship that we're approaching? Is it actually harmless or is this going to be the end? You never know. And the end means really the end because it's uh, not a game. The end means death. Something that struck me in the movie was how young some of the crew were. Uh, for example, the, the actor who plays uh, Blakeney, he's he was born in like 1989. Master and Commander was released in 2003. So he would have been only like 14 years old in the movie, uh, maybe even younger, depending on when they actually shot that versus released it. But was it common to have teenagers that young in the military on a ship like that? Yes. The average age of a member of the ship's company was probably early to mid-20s to mid to late 30s. That's for the sailors and petty officers and officers. But there was a uh, a concerted and organized campaign to start training people young. So officers would often join the service and go to sea 12, 13, 14 years old. And the funny thing is their names would have sometimes been put on the books of the ship already from when they were six years old uh, in order to gather uh, sea time. That was uh, That was sort of a time embezzlement strictly against the law, but people did it. But someone as young as Blakeney, yes, would be aboard that ship, and yes, he could be in combat that young. The Royal Navy, like all the navies at the time, were were breeding men that we would consider today supermen with regards to the standards of seamanship they learned and exhibited. The only nation in the world back in the time of our film that actually had a naval college that had been long-standing was Russia. Peter the Great had started a, a naval college in St. Petersburg, all the other navies of the world learned by experience, sending those young men to sea. The British at that time had just started their uh, naval officers shoreside program. It was a good idea, and it became what it is now. But at that time, there was some prejudice against book learning versus being at sea. And the the pressure was absolutely in, intense for those young men to uh, to basically excel. Promotion in the Royal Navy happened by brilliant, demonstrated behavior. And those who failed were guys like Hollum, as we showed in the film, who stayed midship and were not promoted. And uh, suicide was not uncommon among them. I don't remember when it was exactly in the movie, but there was a scene where, again, I don't remember the which character it was that was teaching him, but I was showing some of the younger men like how to use the sextant and how you know training some of them. It looked like on on deck. It sounds like that would be something that would have been common. Absolutely, Dan. Training was every day, as it is in the Navy today. And even when they're being hotly pursued by a ship that could destroy them and kill them all, it's noon, so they train. And uh, they learn how to take a noon sight and start the ship's day. We we put that scene in there specifically for that reason. And also specifically, notice as soon as Jack turns away, they all look (laughs) at at this pursuing them and stop taking their sun sight. In the movie, there is a mention of someone named Lord Nelson. There's a book that Aubrey gives to Blakeney about Nelson's victories. He also mentions having served under Nelson at the Nile. 
was Lord Nelson a real person? And what was that mention of the Nile that the movie is referring to? Sure. Uh, Lord Nelson was most certainly a real person. One of my jobs was to indoctrinate the actors in the ethos of the time they were portraying. And when I was describing to James Darcy the scene in which he was uh, talking to Jack about Nelson, I said, imagine your nation's greatest military hero is someone you just learned your boss worked for. And that's the sort of reverence. In, uh, in the spring of 1805, he was still alive. Nelson was a brilliant leader who rose to a very high rank rapidly in his career. He was absolutely beloved by his men. He was a tough man, as he had to be to be a commander at sea in those days, as today. But records about him indicate that he knew how to make men love him. There is uh, a letter in existence where he, he interceded himself and paid the debts of a young officer who'd fallen in love with an opera singer in Italy and jumped ship and was in debtor's prison after living with her in a hotel someplace. And because this young man was one of his officers, he felt loyalty to him. And a letter exists that Nelson sent to the boy's father saying, it's okay, I'm fixing this and I've paid the debt. And you can bet when the boy was back aboard, he got a talking to about proper behavior. But that's the sort of thing Nelson did. From the highest ranking brother officers uh, uh, that served with him to the common sailors, they loved him. And his death was quite a blow. So the Nile was one of Nelson's great victories. Uh, he pursued the French up and down the Mediterranean River and caught them at a place called Aboukir Bay, just east of Alexandria, Egypt, just east of the mouth of the Nile River. And the importance of that action was that Napoleon had landed with a huge army in Egypt. There was no Suez Canal then, and his objective was to cut the overland route where the canal now is and help limit England's access to its subcontinent colony in India, which was a source of much wealth. Again, wartime then, just like now, was tactical as well as strategic. So what Nelson did basically was destroy the fleet and maroon the army there. And that was one of two whole armies that Napoleon lost. The other one, of course, was in Russia. It would have been a big deal for Aubrey to have taken part in such a big victory like that. Yeah, a cataclysmic and decisive action with whole fleets of battleships has only happened a very few times in history. In those days, partly because it was so difficult for them to find each other. There were no aircraft, no satellites. And if one ship saw the enemy, how did they tell anybody what they saw? They have to send a ship back with the news. And two weeks later, the enemy's going to be somewhere else. So uh, it was very difficult to bring fleets together decisively and more difficult yet for one fleet to completely destroy the other, as happened at the Nile and at Trafalgar and at Copenhagen. And of course, the Nile was, was particularly uh, horrible because one of the largest French ships, uh, Lorient, uh, caught fire and exploded. And if uh, Jack was there to see a thousand men go up in the air when the ship blew up, that would have been quite something. And it was an impressive enough moment in Nelson's own life that when he was presented with pieces of Lorient as trophies, I guess people thought he'd just send them home. He said he wanted them kept to form his casket when he died. And he was buried in a casket made from Lorient's mainmast. So then if that happened to to Nelson, but it'd be difficult to, to, to find each other, like you were saying, was that almost by accident that they... that they found each other or was did they know that okay this is this is where they're going to be 
Good point. It was partly intuition. Uh, Nelson had a particularly good way of putting himself in the mind of his his opponent, and partly also naval intelligence services uh, spies intercepted messages, overheard conversations, uh, discussions of plans, people lurking on a dock, saying, seeing a ship being loaded, and saying, "Hey, bud, where's this thing going?" And some idiot might say, "Oh." the invasion of of Egypt. <laughs> and a week later in London, they would go. I'm being facetious, but they took uh, as great care then as, uh, as military uh, intelligence men do today, men and women, to try to discern what plans the enemy might have. Nelson would have known uh, if, in the Nile campaign, for example, that their supply line to, to India was threatened if Napoleon had a large fleet on the loose of warships, he would know that Napoleon might try to do something about it. He, uh, before Trafalgar, he chased the French three three times back and forth across the Atlantic, knowing that uh, sugar and uh, grain coming from the colonies in the Caribbean and the, the United States needed to get to France. He knew the French would try to maintain that lifeline. He also knew in the summer of 1805, jumping up to the time of our film now, and this goes to some of the lines that we gave Jack Aubrey in the story. Aubrey would know, like every other Royal Naval captain, that if Napoleon could control the English Channel for a week, England could be invaded by an army she couldn't face. So there was desperate work and strategy being done trying to prevent the French from accumulating a large fleet. And uh, one of the exciting story points in choosing the year 18, April of 1805, as we did for the film, is that they know that home is in great danger of invasion, great danger. And here they're sent off around the world doing something else. They don't know what's happening at home. Uh, England could have been invaded and taken. They didn't know that in October of that year, Nelson caught the French and the Spanish combined fleets at Trafalgar and destroyed them. That for a while eliminated the, uh, uh, the threat of invasion. But it's important to remember that that war carried on another 10 years. It was generations of a world at war then. When you were talking about the information, that brought something to mind that we see in the movie as well, and that's when uh, William Morley and Joseph Nagel, they give Aubrey a skill model of the Asheron because I guess Worley happened to be in Boston, right? He saw it being built, and then the carpenter's mate puts together a, a model of the ship. When I saw that in the movie, and then when you're talking about being able to gather information about where things are, I got the sense that getting that information would have been extremely rare. And so it was something that when in the movie where we see Aubrey being able to tell how his enemy's ship is built, that gives him a tactical advantage. Would that be the case? Yeah, well, it, it was certainly the case, but it was not unusual. Both sides had very active espionage services uh, trying to keep track of what each other was doing. And what was happening later than the time of the movie was the U.S. Navy quite brilliantly came up with what came to be called super frigates. And we assumed that our Asheron was one of these super frigates. They were called frigates. They sailed like frigates, but they were built like ships of the line. So uh, in modern terms, I guess you might say it's uh, fast and maneuverable like a destroyer, but armed like a battleship. And the, the Americans started that, the French carried it on, and the British were a step behind catching up. So uh, th that's what makes the Asheron so so uh, so formidable. To have someone on board who actually saw it himself that wasn't an intelligence officer, that's just luck. And we imagined that 
this young man uh, is a sailor, and he was impressed enough with the description of it. He wanted to build a model of it. So uh, actually, that model was built next door to my office in the studio in Baja while we were shooting the film. And yes, I coveted that model, but we all thought it would be another movie, so we left it behind with all the props. <laughs> it was not unusual for intelligence to be gathered. It was not at all unusual for that. But there was a new kind of frigate coming onto the scene. That's why actually I jotted the line down where Jack says, what an incredible modern day we live in. People thought then they couldn't cope with chains, just like we can't cope with it today. Well, they thought so too then. And uh, we imagined that Asheron was a sister of Constitution and the other super frigates that were built. And we know that the, uh, uh, the fledgling U.S. government was having great difficulty paying for these ships. And we imagined a consortium of French ship owners being driven towards bankruptcy by the blockade preventing their, their lines of ships from going, banding together and buying one of those ships from the Americans. And yes, the Americans, just like today, sometimes irritated their allies by giving weapons and so forth to people who later become enemies, and then they have to face them again. Uh, that was happening then. So we imagined that this frigate might have been bought by a consortium of men who were wanted to go privateering. She's way too big to be a privateer. So what cargo, what, what prey could be uh, worth the huge investment to buy such a large, an outfit, such a large warship? Whale oil. And that fits perfectly with the Essex story. And if, if you watch the movie over and over again and stop frames and so forth, you'll see that we dressed the, uh, the French sailors on one hand like their grandfathers. They really should have looked like the English, but it being a movie, they wanted the bad guys to look different. So we dressed them from an earlier period. You'll see I put uh, French Revolutionary roundels on their caps and so forth. And I armed them with an odd assortment of obsolete military equipment, both French and English. And I imagined a warehouse of captured equipment that these guys would have bought and then outfitted the men with it. You'll notice they don't have airlocks on their cannons because, of course, that's a new innovation that only the Navy has at that point. And if you stop, fr stop frame on some of the French sailors in the, in the melee fighting scenes, You'll say, geez, that guy's got a, a sword baldric. It looks like a, an army one. Well, yeah, it was. And this guy's got an English uh, uh, 1803 pattern cutlass. Where do you get that from? Well, from the warehouse sale. <laughs> That's what we imagine. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and go frame by frame on some of those and, and check that out for sure. <laughs> there are layers and layers and layers in there that nobody will ever see. But our, our hope was that there would be a patina of realism that would accumulate. One of the locations that we get to see in the movie is the uh, Galapagos Islands, or as uh, Matern calls them, the Enchanted Isles. And according to the movie, they're, at that point, they're, they're thought to have had all manner of strange creatures. I think the, the map that um, Dr. Matern is holding at one point says that the Isles were discovered by Captain Cowley in 1684. Uh, but then Aubrey says that he's going to be the first naturalist to step foot on the island. And since the movie's taking place in 1805, that's like 121 years after they were discovered, would it be normal for an island to be discovered and then not have anybody step foot on them for so long? Well, uh, a remote island, yes. Uh, but these islands were actually being trod upon quite heavily by people slaughtering tortoises, seals, and iguanas and so forth for food. The whalers were already beginning to use the islands uh, as a reprovisioning re port. But as far as is known, no naturalist ever did a study there until Darwin. 
which is, of course, the generation after our film. So we wanted to imagine what would have happened if, say, Joseph Banks, who was a very wealthy naturalist traveling with Cook, had had a chance to go to those islands and make the discoveries and make the connections that maybe Charles Darwin did 30 years later. That's what we were imagining there. So they they weren't uh, untrod by humans, but they were untrod by scientists. By scientists. Okay. Okay. I guess, yeah, that's the key there. Accurate charts of new parts of the world were military secrets then. So those who knew where the Galapagos were wouldn't tell anybody. Uh, And that was partly on a national security level. And partly, uh, say, you worked for uh, one whaling ship owner and you knew where there was good water. Well, you wouldn't blab it to everybody, so you had that good water yourself. And uh, so th- there's layers of uh, secrecy there. So then does the the intelligence and the espionage start to go in there where one military is trying to keep this, the location of these islands a secret, but another one figures out, okay, no, they know where these islands are, so now we can go there and, and all that starts to factor in then? Absolutely. And uh, similarly, in real life, the Americans in our film, the French, have realized that uh, whaling in the Pacific Ocean is just opening. It's just uh, people are wandering in there for the first time, and there's sperm and right and uh, fin whales and so forth that are uh, have not been hunted before. It's virgin territory for that for that industry, and so espionage would have told those national services there's prey there for us, the whalers themselves, and uh, it's very similar to how things work today. I wanted to ask you about one of the punishments that we see in the movie, and it's um, when Aubrey happens to see Nagel bumping into Hollum on deck, and he refuses to salute him. And for this, Nagel is flogged 12 times. Was that a punishment that would have been carried out for refusing to salute someone of a higher rank? Yeah, there's and there's a lot there, Dan. There's a lot there. And I'm going to talk a bit about history, and I'm going to talk a bit about my own naval service uh, in the modern Navy. In that scene, Nagel is uh, not just disrespecting Hollum, the junior officer. He's actually butts him with his shoulder as he goes by. That's absolute disdain and disrespect. The man would not have had to be punished if Hollum had turned and said, you there, stand, and what are, you, what are you about, man, or something like that, and reminded that fellow to step aside or salute and apologize, and that the whole thing would have carried on without intercession by the captain, if Hollum was a good officer and had done that. But Hollum was not a good officer. He was not confident. And he did not react to the punishment. The captain saw it. That's why the captain interceded right away when he saw the man didn't. He can't let that sort of uh, dissolving of the chain of command happen. It's, it's the beginning of rot that they just cannot let happen. You salute the rank, not the man. And we had that that scene that I uh, well I told you before we started talking here. I was crouching in Jack's cabin when uh, Captain Aubrey in his white shirt is trying to explain to the young officer how to be a good officer, and the kid's just not getting it. And I was watching that scene, thinking, "My God, I'm watching an Academy Award performance because I believed that Russell Crowe was a Royal Naval Captain doing his best to give this young man what he has himself, but he knows that young man's just not catching it." There's another point in the procedure, which is inexorably started once the uh, disrespect is demonstrated, where the captain can order up to 12 lashes. That's quite severe without other captains being there for a trial. But the charge is read, and there's a moment in the full 
ceremony, which is like as inexorable as a wedding. When it, once it starts, it carries through to the end. When the captain reads the charge, and then he says, do his officers have anything to say for him? And they still say that today in the Royal Canadian Navy and in the Royal Navy, and I assume in the U.S. Navy too. And that is the moment when a good officer, if Holland was a good officer, would step forward and say, yes, sir, he's been very attentive to his duties. I think he stumbled, and uh, I recommend, sir, leniency. He's a good man. And then that would have allowed the captain to say, right, you deal with it at your level. And by God, you can imagine that that junior officer would take that guy aside afterwards and say, you idiot, do you know what just about happened to you? Don't make me save you again, which something like that. But Dan, when we shot that scene, and I wish it could have been shown in its entirety, there was a moment when the officers are lined up at the break of the quarterdeck, and Crow uh, reads the, the charge, and he says the line, do his officers have anything to say for him? He rocked forward on his feet and inclined his head a little bit so that his peripheral vision looked down the faces of his officers. And at that moment, Lee Ingleby, playing Hollum, rocked back on his heels and hid behind the guy beside him. And the director said, what did you just do? After he yelled, cut. And then we, we explained, and but we, it didn't survive editing. But that was Jack giving that officer one more chance to be a good officer. If he only knew how to do it, and the kid was afraid. He, he rocked back and he didn't say anything. So Holland was flogged and everybody in the crew knew, yeah, you shouldn't bump into an officer. You got what you deserved, but it shouldn't have gone up to the captain and forced him to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, that would have been, that would have been great. Just that nice little subtlety of, of backing away and shirking that responsibility. Yeah. That, that movie could have been 12 hours long, Dan, with the material we shot. <laughs> <laughs> in my own career, I witnessed uh, what they call a summary trial once, where an act of insubordination had happened to a petty officer. And this was in the modern Royal Canadian Navy. And I was in the room when the summary trial occurred, and the witnesses were called, and some of them were at sea in the Persian Gulf and so forth. And they, they made their testimony by radio. And after hearing all the evidence, there was that moment when they say, do his officers have anything to say for him? And superior officer actually was the guy that he disrespected and he didn't say anything and that young man basically had his career broken for what he did mostly because it was in public the disrespect he showed to his superior but as soon as he was marched off afterwards he received a fine and was frozen in rank for for two years i believe and they marched him out and then my commanding officer just swiveled his head and looked at the PO who hadn't spoken, who had basically provoked the disrespect by his poor leadership. And he said, you come with me. And practically saw the walls bulging in the cabin. Well, that fellow had a talking to. Wow. It's serious. It, you cannot allow, uh, you cannot allow uh, a dissolving of the, uh, the strength of the chain of command. It's bad for morale. It's bad for efficiency. It's bad, bad, bad. So that's why Jack did what he did in that scene. Wow. Yeah, that puts a whole whole new level of clarity on not only with Aubrey's character, with you know, Jack Aubrey's character, but also with with Hollum and how he was failing to do what he was supposed to do. And so it was, you know, partially his fault as well for letting that happen. What we tried to get across in this film, and this I, I'll say is my favorite part of what what I think we we achieved in the film was depict a well run ship's company as a partnership. 
imagine the ship's company, the crew, owe their officers obedience and uh, expert skill at their trades, be they sailors or sailmakers or carpenters or gunners or whatever. But the officers equally owe the crew judgment and good leadership. And the crew expect that of their officers. And they're tough to lead because they're lions and they need to be led well. And we, we tried to show that HMS Surprise had a, a functioning partnership happening there with the two pyramids. And the point where it wasn't working was when Hollum did not react as he should have to that, to that disrespect. Well, speaking of Hollum, there's another term that we hear in the movie kind of surrounding him, and that's the one, uh, the term of Jonah. And it suggests that it's a curse. Now, I'm assuming that the name Jonah comes from the biblical story of Jonah. There is a brief shot where we see Captain Aubrey holding a Bible open to the book of Jonah after Hollum's death. But was this concept of the curse of Jonah a real thing? Uh, anecdotally, yes, but not as a focal point. We had Killick hand the book open to the book of Jonah because Killick's a jerk and he doesn't have a sense of appropriateness. And it was a sign of like what kind of man Killick is. Uh, in sense, the sailors, sailors were superstitious, but as in our discussion about weather gauge, there's a lot going on in that scene. And being declared a Jonah was a symptom of the terrible pressure that was crushing Hollum. He knew he wasn't a good officer. He was in a world that was breeding supermen as naval officers. He wasn't making the grade, and he was failing and failing and failing. And he was under terrible pressure. So being declared a Jonah and then being further despised by the ship's company uh, is what caused him to commit suicide. Some men who were religious might have uh, hearkened on the Jonah story. We had the seaman with the uh, who revived himself from the brain surgery, becoming ultra-religious as a symptom of the reborn self. His character changed. That wasn't something that you would imagine uh, 10 out of 10 sailors believed in, but maybe two or three. And it's the sort of brand that a bad officer could earn for himself that would stick. And that was one of the things crushing that young man. Funny thing is, Lee Ingleby was the sort of young man who, if I had him aboard uh, the vessel that I was in command of in the historic service, he would have been a superb officer, but he had to play, he had to play a bad one. And uh, we signed each other's uh, uh, souvenir books at the end of the production, and he wrote in mine, Drowning wouldn't have been the same without you. Thanks for writing half my lines. So he was a, a young man who could have been a great officer, but he was playing a, a man that wasn't making the grade. And again, the service was... On one hand, nurturing the uh, like a, a happy officer's wardroom, a happy officer's mess, was it like a family? And we showed that in the dinner scenes. But if you weren't in that group and you earned your place in that group by your excellence, you were outcast, and and that was a tragic role to be in and very very tough to break out of. If Hallam say had survived and that particular uh, mission and found himself on another ship somewhere else. Would that sort of superstition kind of be stuck to him and the, those stories kind of play out where basically from here on out, he's seen as this outcast? It could. But what I, I'd like to think is that if Hollum had survived that, that expedition, he might have gone into the merchant service and being captain of a small trading schooner on the coast of England or Canada or wherever, uh, he might have lived a very, very successful career, not having to be a tough sea officer, which he wasn't. So I'd like to think that, that that's what might have happened with him. 
Now, at the, at the very end of the movie, we see Captain Aubrey come up with another clever tactic in the back and forth. And we talked a little bit about this, but this is when he uh, pretends to be uh, a whaling ship. And, and the idea that the movie puts forth is uh, Aubrey gets the idea for this from a phasmid that Matron picks up on the Galapagos Islands. It's, I always call them walking sticks, right? Basically the bugs that you know look like sticks, right? To, to disguise themselves from predators. That idea of coming from nature, and you already talked about how that sort of disguise actually happened, but was that something that would have come almost spur of the moment like that, being inspired by nature's disguises like that? Or was that would that just be, okay, we, we know that this is something that could work. Okay, let's try a whaling ship and, and disguise that way. Yes, uh, the latter, the latter, Dan. Uh, it, it would be something that uh, an enterprising officer would always have in the back of his mind. And all through history, there's examples of such things being done. Uh, as recently as the uh, late 1940s in China, when the uh, Red Chinese were taking over the country, a small British warship, uh, 1949, I think, was caught far up the Yangtze River and by nationalist forces who had gun batteries and she couldn't get out. She was badly damaged. A lot of people were hurt. And when they finally had to make a run for it to get out to sea past the uh, the Red Chinese forces, uh, they did it at night, and they hung canvas screens up in their rigging to change the shape of their ship. So when she was seen as a silhouette, she might not be a warship. She might be a, a merchant ship. They should be let through. And that caused enough doubt long enough that she got away. So naval officers have done that all through history. And I talked about the fellow with the lights at the beginning. Uh, fooling uh, a warship by his uh, by his audacity. Uh, so yes, it's something that was that was done regularly, and you can imagine how the person it was being done to would be very wary. So they have to be uh, very convinced. And in the case of our uh, of our French uh, privateer Asheron, it's uh, it's greed that that causes them to be a little less cautious than they might be. And of course, here's a surprise right in the very waters where they've been snapping up whaling ships. And here's a big one. Big surprise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Speaking about the animals that they get from the island, Stephen's character, Dr. Metron's character, mentions a couple of times taking those discoveries to the king. Would that be something that would really happen? Like you discover new animals and then they get shown to royalty? Yes. We had discussions about this with our, uh, our American colleagues when we shot the film. The concept of royalty is not generally what the uh, perception of it may be in the outside world, I'll put it. The royalty in a parliamentary government represents an abstract of what is good and fair. And it is the assumption today, as it would have been in Jack's time too, that the king represented some abstract of goodness and fairness and scientific curiosity and everything that was good in the nation's character. The fact that George III was a man who had periodic bouts of insanity is uh, an unfortunate side point, but his office is something that represents an ideal. So if uh, an expedition brought back a new discovery, it would be presented to the crown. And yes, the king might see it himself, but what they really mean is present it to the nation and present it for, for, uh, for proper uh, appreciation and awareness and so forth. That's, that's what that means. It's an interesting case, even in light of what's in the media nowadays. I won't go into that, but uh, the uh, yeah, the royal family are real people. They're real individuals with their good and bad points. But the offices they hold are a high, high ideal that's supposedly beyond human fallibility. And 
that's what the office is, but it is occupied by people sometimes that are different from that. If there is something from the historical perspective that didn't make its way into the movie that you wish had, what would that be? Well, there isn't anything like that, Dan. But there is something that did get in that I have to say is what I love most about that film. And we touched on it earlier in this this talk. That is the balance of responsibility in a well-functioning ship's company. The contract between the officers and their and their and the crew uh, that is equal in uh, equally binding for both and equally heavy to carry. I like to think that we got that across in the story. That there's uh, there's heavy responsibility on the officers as well as on the men, and they expect a lot of each other. That's that's what it is. They expect a lot of each other, and in a well well functioning ship, they get it. And there's no room for people to fit. And that's the tragic thing about Hollem. Yeah, you definitely get the sense that it's even though you know the rankings, there, there is a hierarchy in the rankings. Everybody's working together on this, and you know everybody knows what their place is in order to achieve whatever their their mission is in the end. I, when we made that film all those years ago, that was a long time ago. My hair wasn't gray then. <laughs> I read a lot of letters because I I was uh, looking for hints at people's dialects and so on because of the way people might have written phonetically. And I found an officer writing to another officer in a blockading squadron, warning that captain to watch out for one young officer because he could see him in the quarter gallery, which of course were the officer's heads, the bathroom, weeping in the ship. Well, that's the only place he could be alone, but there's windows. And this guy was under such terrible pressure, trouble at home, uh, failures in his ability to command. I, I don't know what it was, but that young man was under such terrible pressure that he was noticed to be weeping when he thought he was alone. And I remembered that and I described it to the production. And we put a little bit of that into Hollem. He's probably not a bad person, but he's he's not fitting. He's not he's not working for him. And I never forgot that. And the amount of pressure that that has to put on somebody. Yeah, and they have to. It's a it's a, a world war going on, and the uh, let alone from uh, uh, the quote level of seamanship required, they couldn't be easy on people. There was no room for that. What's your favorite story from the set as the movie was being made? Funny, my wife and I were were going down memory lane. She kept many of my emails, which I can read again. And some nights I'd get back to where I was living while we shot the movie. I'd be so exhausted I wouldn't know how to keep how to get up again the next day. And other times I think I haven't seen haven't seen you guys for two and a half months and Peter's voice is changing and I'm not home. What kind of father am I being? And that was pressure on me that was personal. But something that it's, uh, was unforgettable was the day when I started my training for the 60 stuntmen we had in the film. We were a month running up to the big climactic battle scene at the end, training those people. And I was given uh, sessions with them every day for a period of time. and. Imagine a classroom, like a, any classroom you would have been in in high school or, or public school, and I have these 60 guys sitting in front of me, and they're all tough dudes, and they've been in movies, and they know how to do falls and drops and handle weapons and so forth. I needed to make an impression on them right from the start. So what I, I did was I, I was introduced, and I stood up there, and I guess they figured I'd be a, a boring history geek or something. And I said, what kind of gun did Dirty Harry carry? And uh, 44 Magnum, they all knew, of course. And I said, nobody carried anything that light into a fight in 1805. This is a 75 caliber sea service pistol, 1803 model. 
And I took a, a bullet and I tossed it to the guy in the front row. And I said, I could hurt you if I threw that at you. Imagine it coming at just under the speed of sound out of this pistol. And then I, I took a nine-pounder round shot, what Americans call a cannonball, and I held it up and I said, this is the nine-pounder round shot. And I tossed it in the air. Crash! Bang, bang, bang. It went down the aisle between the seats. And I said, now imagine that coming through this wall at just under the speed of sound. It would kill all of us with the uh, debris that it threw. And then I had their attention. And I wanted them to respect the weapons, although they appeared unsophisticated to what they were used to. Those guys were fantastic. They would buttonhole me on the set and ask me questions about their characters. And uh, that's just something that I, I remember is a, a little uh, teaching ruse I used that worked out well. Yeah, I, w- I would say so. I have a, a nine pounder <laughs> rolling down the aisle that, w- that would get your attention. That's for sure. <laughs> One of the most unforgettable times uh, working on the film was after we finished principal photography. I was uh, I was ordered to create a file of period firsthand accounts of what shot, shot sounded like of various calibers. And I presented a, uh, a an essay basically describing the shot rent the air like the ripping of silk and so forth and various other firsthand descriptions. And Peter Weir very generously and brilliantly said to me, if I sent you someplace, could we actually do this? So to make a long story short, in January of 2003, we went to an artillery range in northern Michigan in the winter working with a bunch of uh, reenactors I knew who every summer held an artillery match with live live artillery uh, from the Napoleonic and Civil War periods. So when you hear gunfire in the film, and every time you hear a shot, it's the right size of gun firing at the right range with the right kind of projectile. So over a week in northern Michigan, we fired 24-pounders, 9-pounders, 12-pounders, round shot, bar shot, grape shot, canister, uh, at various targets and recorded the sound. And Richard King, our sound designer, very deservedly won an Academy Award for the work he did on the film. And I'm very proud to have been part of part of that. Actually doing it is uh, nothing like reading about it in books. O'Brien writes about the distinctive ringing crack of a bronze gun. Well, the gun rings like a bell. And the ring almost overshadows the boom. And that's because the, uh, well, the shot is rattling down the bore as it goes. And when Peter heard that, he said to me, Gordon, if we had a narrator, he said, perhaps you, I put the camera on you, and then you'd say, the gun's making that strange sound or that peculiar sound because, and then describe it. He said, we don't have a narrator. He said, I don't want the audience distracted by that. I want them to concentrate on the courage of the young man that just aimed and fired that cannon. So we didn't get that, that ring. We found that bar shot, which uh, academic historians will tell you is inaccurate uh, and designed to smash up rigging and so forth, we could throw bar shot screaming at 800 feet per second, three feet over microphones, 800 yards away every time. It's a terrible weapon, and it strikes with ter- terrific energy. Round shot, when you have time to aim and use and to clean the gun between every shot, is like a laser with regards to accuracy. Accuracy, how can that be accurate? You know, that's that's complete heresy compared to what academic history would tell you. But if the target is not moving and the platform the gun is on, is on is not moving, you can aim it very well and the shot will fly true. What you cannot do is track a moving target. They didn't have gun carriages that could do that. So they're damn near as accurate at shorter ranges as rifle projectiles. 
that was astonishing. Grape was seeing grape shot coming uh, was like a swarm of bees, and you could see it coming. But it, uh, you don't have time to say, look out. <laughs> Just as you draw breath to say, look out, it, it whooshes by. We had cameras to, to catch that. It was uh, quite, quite something. The weapons there were, uh, they used then were, were terrible weapons. A, a charge of grape shot from a nine pounder cannon is like a, a long burst from a 50 caliber machine gun. The grape shot is the one that's basically like, uh, connected by chains, right? No, a grape shot in Jack Aubrey's day was a, um, a wooden or metal uh, disc with a stem on it. And quilted around it uh, would be, uh, I guess for a 12-pounder, would be 20 uh, inch-and-a-half diameter iron balls tied together with a quilt. So when you loaded it in the gun, it was one projectile. When the shot was fired, the, the quilting would disintegrate and the shot would fly in a fairly dense cloud of smaller pieces. And that was capable of penetrating light structures. Uh, wouldn't do people much good either. Uh, the shot with chain was called chain shot. And rather than have a chain like you see in Pirates of the Caribbean or whatever, it was uh, two or three long links that were telescoped and collapsed together and then tied with twine so it could be rapidly loaded into the gun. When it was fired, the twine broke and the two hemispheres would twirl in the air. I'd read that the English didn't like using it much because it wasn't terribly effective. The French and Americans used it a lot. And my judgment from firing it at Grayling, Michigan that winter was it's a terror weapon, not terribly effective, but a great terror weapon. It slows down so fast in the air that beyond, say, 250 yards, it's it's falling, but it screams when it flies. And that uh, that's something in itself. Okay, so the the sound of it coming towards you is is stri- you know strike fear into you because you know that something's coming. Yeah, whereas a bar shot is not so noisy but does a hell of a lot more damage. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't want to be on the receiving end of any of those <laughs> by any means. Those sound terrible. No, uh, no, neither. Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about Master and Commander. For someone listening to this who is not familiar with your work, can you give them an overview of what you do and share your website where they can learn more? Sure. Uh, my son's told me my website is embarrassing because it's so primitive. Uh, but if you Google my name, Gordon Lacko, G-O-R-D-O-N-L-A-C-O, with no gap, uh, you'll see gordonlacko.com. That's my website. I am a historian and technical advisor to film and television. I've done, I guess, 65 films now. I've, I'm embarked on another one since you and I last talked. It's set at sea in 1663. And uh, I'm hard at work on that at this moment. I also outfit historic sailing ships and uh, provide consulting services to museum programs and and so forth. And I'm quite fortunate, I think, that things have turned out the way they have for me. I I love what I do. When my mother passed away, I just thought of this now, among her effects, we found this. That's a sailing ship with gun ports. And my mother wrote on the back, Drawn by Gordy, age two years, two months. <laughs> so who knows where that comes from, but uh, I'm, I feel quite fortunate to have the opportunity to work with the people I work with and to do what I do. At two years. Wow, you knew what you wanted to do. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again so much for your time, Gordon. You're welcome. Bye-bye. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. 
I'd like to thank Gordon Lacko once again for taking the time to help us separate fact from fiction in 2003's Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Gordon has worked as a consultant or marine outfitter for a ton of movies and TV shows like American Gods, Moby Dick, K-19 The Widowmaker, and of course, the movie that he came on to base on a true story to chat about earlier this year, Greyhound, and many more. If you want to learn even more about Gordon's work, go check out his company's website over at gordonlacco.com. You can find that link in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, hiding in the fog would not have happened like we see in the movie. Number two, the movie's original title was only The Far Side of the World, until the title Master and Commander was added in the last weeks of post-production. Number three, using the ruse of a lit decoy at night would not ever work like we see in the movie. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. Hiding in the fog would not have happened like we see in the movie. That is true. And by true, what I mean is hiding in the fog would not have happened like we see in the movie. So it is true that it would not have happened. (laughs) But as we learned from Gordon, while it may be possible to hide in some dense fog, if you entered with some speed and then altered course in the fog, a ship the size of Surprise in the movie being towed by three boats like we see in the movie would not have been able to hide in the fog like that. Let's go out of orbiter on purpose here and answer number three next. Using the ruse of a lit decoy at night wouldn't ever work like we see in the movie. That is the lie. And by being the lie, what I mean is it could work. (laughs) Although I'll admit I probably could have worded these a little bit better, but you get the idea. In fact, as Gordon pointed out, not only did ruses and disguises often work back then and even today, but the real person that Russell Crowe's character was based on, Thomas Cochran, actually did that whole decoy at night thing. That means number two is also true. The movie's original title was only The Far Side of the World until the title Master and Commander was added in the last weeks of post-production. Gordon pointed out that they had hoped the movie would be the first of a series, the Master and Commander series. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. I know that's not something that most podcasts do, which is exactly why I'm sharing this information. If there's one thing that's surprising to most people who are either new to podcasting or have never created a podcast themselves before, it's just how much time goes into creating them. So I figure maybe if you find out more about how much time and money goes into creating podcasts, maybe you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. Of course, I only have the time and expenses for my own show. So with that said, today's episode took a total of 22 hours to create and cost $19.82 in out-of-pocket expenses. As I always do, I want to make it clear that that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. In other words, that 22 hours obviously does not include my guest time researching the subject matter that we talked about or working on the movie itself. It also doesn't include the time that it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not part of creating this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story website, social media, the email newsletter, and all those other little things that are outside creating a single podcast episode but are still required overall to make a podcast. Similarly, on the expenses side, that $19.82 is just for things specifically for this one episode. Does not include all the podcast-related expenses that go beyond this one episode. For example, the cost of the microphone that I'm talking into right now, the cables hooked up to the microphone, the audio interface is plugged into, the computer to record, the software, all the podcast and website hosting costs, and on and on. 
all those things cost an average of a few hundred dollars a month in out-of-pocket expenses and take time to set up and maintain. And all that goes beyond things that are associated with this one episode. But they are all things that are required because if I didn't do those things, there wouldn't be any episodes of Based on a True Story at all. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that is why I am so thankful for the sponsors whose ads you've heard on this episode. You can find out more information about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. But they're not the only ones helping to keep the show alive. There are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show going financially. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. As a bonus, you'll get access to the producer's feed, which as of this recording has over 65 exclusive minisodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes like this one. You can find out how to get access to all of that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>